Welcome to the Healthy Love and Money Podcast. If you find money to be the number one, two, or even third largest source of stress in your relationship, then you're in the right place. Going beyond how to budget, invest, and do your taxes, we're going to explore financial intimacy. Discover how to talk with your partner about your shared financial life. Let's take the awkward and painful out of money conversations. Join me and hit follow to listen to weekly inspiring, healing, and motivating interviews with financial therapists, couples therapists, and financial planners, and so many more. Let's go on the journey of financial intimacy together. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Healthy Love and Money Podcast. Today, I have the distinct honor of introducing Dr. Kenneth White. He's a professor at the University of Arizona, and we had the chance recently to meet at a financial planning conference, and we had some really interesting conversations. And then I saw some follow-up social posts about some research he was doing. I was like, I got to have Kenneth on the show to talk about this stuff. So I want to call you Dr. White. I want to call you Kenneth. (laughs) I'm going to call you Kenneth. Is that all right? That's perfectly fine. Yeah. (laughs) So, so Kenneth, thank you so much for being on the show and carving in some time out of your very busy day to be with us. Uh, I love having academics on the show because I I want listeners to know that there's a whole group of people that are researching how to improve people's financial well-being and financial outcomes. And and you're one of those distinguished professors doing that work. And so I, I want to highlight that and, and thank you for that and just let the audience know. Um, just like there's ongoing medical research, there is ongoing research on people's financial well-being and, and how, as a profession, we can improve outcomes for clients. So, you know, thank you for the work that you're doing. Oh, absolutely. I appreciate you having me on today. Absolutely. So before you became a professor, how, t- tell us about the journey. How did you get to being a professor in personal finance? Yeah, this is definitely not, not a, uh, a linear path here. <laughs> so I was an undergraduate math major. And um, when I graduated with my bachelor's in math, I went on and did um some high school teaching. I was a high school math teacher. I worked as a, a actuarial analyst for a while. And um, I worked at uh, one of the automakers for a while. So I did a, a lot of things uh, before going back to school to get my master's degree. I went and got a master's in accounting uh, with the expectation that I was going to become a, a CPA because I'm, I was interested in these uh financial topics. And so what is the person or uh, that people think about when they think about, you know, financial topics, they think about their CPA. So that's what I wanted to be. And I worked in public accounting for a little while and and realized just that uh, although I I really liked working with taxes, I didn't like sitting in a cubicle all day. Um, so I, I left public accounting, went to work at an investment company, and I worked there for a few years. And uh, then I joined the the ranks of the Internal Revenue Service and became a revenue agent. And so I was auditing uh, small businesses and self-employed individuals for tax compliance. Um, and then one day I just I woke up. Uh, at one Saturday morning and and realized that this idea I had in the back of my mind to get a PhD was never going to come to pass if I didn't just go out and do it. And so 
uh, I signed up and took the GRE that uh, took, signed up for the GRE and I took it a couple weeks later and applied to a, a bunch of PhD programs. Um, of course, they're very competitive, so I didn't get into most of the ones that I applied to, but I did get into uh, Ohio, the Ohio State University and um, I studied family resource management there with a, with a minor in economics and that's how it started and uh, was there for got my PhD and, and went on to my first academic position and um, eventually got tenure and uh, moved over to the University of Arizona. So that's the short version of this uh, nonlinear path. <laughs> So, I mean, anybody that's listening to this might be thinking, whoa, I mean, Kenneth must be like 80 years old with all those career transitions. <laughs> he is not, I can assure you that. Uh, but I, it's what strikes me is it sounds like you've been willing to keep evolving as you learn a little bit more about yourself and you learn about what's in the marketplace and how to apply your knowledge and skills. You, you just kept challenging yourself to learn and try something new. And I imagine that 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 ability really gives you some big perspective on on money and people just having such diverse experiences is that would that be fair to say absolutely um i have well first i appreciate a, a really good challenge and um so i'll i'll jump in to it wholeheartedly uh but you know i've i've been fortunate to live uh in multiple places uh, uh, around the country and meet lots of people and have lots of professional experiences. And it kind of, you know, they, they all kind of come together into what I do right now. You know, my, my lived experiences kind of inform the kind of research that I do. And also when I'm in the classroom working with students I'm in, you know, the work that I did as uh, an actuarial analyst comes into play when we're talking about risk management and insurance. You know, my investments background comes into play when we're talking about investment planning, of course, and and all the financial planning is based on tax planning. So uh, my experience in public accounting and with the IRS definitely um, has benefited me in the classroom as well. I mean, there's just such a, a deep curiosity and a passion that just seems to radiate from you around like getting these deep bodies of knowledge and you, you said it yourself, I love a challenge. I'm going to jump into it. And, and what struck me too is you've taught high school students yes. math and now you're teaching probably math topics amongst within the financial planning stuff to college students. And I'm curious because I know that there's a segment of our population that really fears and struggles with math. Mm -hmm. And then there's this connection with like, if I'm not good at math and I'm not good at money, how do you help students like that with that, that have that kind of mindset? I'm sure you've run into this a gazillion times. Yeah, well, there's, um, there is some um, empirical evidence that your level of math knowledge or numeracy, as it's called in, in the research, is uh, positively associated with the amount of financial literacy that you might be able to or your financial capability. And so... I'm almost afraid to make this statement, but people that, that tend to be good in math are, are at least um, able to grasp financial concepts, even if they don't always uh, have the financial behavior that matches what they know. Uh, <laughs> I, I love the nuance there. I love the nuance. Yes. But yeah, so 
I've taught uh, retirement planning most often in uh, as a professor, and there is a good amount of math, but there's also a, a, enough tools that can help with the math that that we need. So it's more important that that students and people understand what the numbers mean and how you know, we kind of got to the numbers uh, versus can they do the calculations. So yeah, I, I think that that's what I try and emphasize when I'm working with students is uh, just kind of understand the, the idea and the concept behind the numbers and what the numbers are telling you, because we can use something as as simple as Excel to do a lot of the uh, to do a lot of the calculations if you know the formulas. I, I really appreciate you naming that. And I think that that I, I wish someone would have told me that probably 15 years ago. Ed, you, you don't have to understand how all the math works, but you do just, you need to understand what it means. And really that's right. In When you're in financial planning conversations with clients, that's really a big part of our job is to be kind of an interpreter of like, here's what this information means. Here's what this information means. And then being able to check and make sure the, the client's understanding what we're presenting them with. Yeah. You know, if, for, for example, when we're doing um, retirement calculations and, um, the projections on what people need to save and uh, for retirement. If you understand that um, how inflation works in that calculation, and you know, that's more important than really understanding necessarily understanding all of the calculations that go into it. You know, so I, I kind of approach it from that standpoint. Um, you know, when I was a high school math teacher, I taught. Uh, geometry and trigonometry and pre-calculus and calculus. And uh, you don't need that level of math in order to master your money. I love, thank you. I thank you for just naming that. I mean, really, I mean, money math is mostly pretty simple, arithmetic and multiplication. Yeah. Uh, compound interest gets a little more complicated, but beyond that, not a whole lot more. Yeah, some of the time value of money stuff can get a little bit compl- complicated, but you know, if you understand time value of money and uh, just kind of those calculations and what goes into those calculations, you can th- that'll take you a long way towards understanding uh, how to plan for your financial future. All right. So coming from a personal finance professor. <laughs> For the listeners that already understand time value of money, just go ahead and fast forward 30 seconds. But for those that are hearing this word, because this is also, I think, part of building our relationship with money is getting comfortable with the vocabulary. And time value of money is one of those foundational financial planning concepts. And if you're unfamiliar with it, it can you can hear me. What is this? What is this number? What does it mean? So can you break it down for us? At a high level, what is time value of money and why is it so important? Yeah, time value of money um, in its simplest form just says that a dollar today will probably be worth less than a dollar 20 years from now. And so the time value of money will tell you how much do you need to save if you want X amount of dollars in 20 years? And that's going to be based on things like uh, the inflation rate or the uh, return on investments that you can get. And so, you know, understanding that inflation is kind of the uh, big eroder of uh, your purchasing power. 
And so we need to take into it. We need to take that into account when we're talking about um, saving for the future. And so that's why just putting money into a savings account that you're earning one percent on or two percent on probably won't get you where you want to be in the most efficient manner because you'll you won't be keeping pace with inflation, especially not now, you know, with the high inflation that we're having now. Yeah, these are such important concepts and ones to not miss their significance. And this, whenever I hear this come into this concept, I just think about, man, I wish my parents would have known more about investing because it would have meant something more for, for some of our, my own funding, you know, and, and I think that that's true for a lot of us in personal finances. We're, we get into this because we, we want to do a better job with money than what we saw in our own families, our own community. I don't know if that's true for you or not. Oh, you know, absolutely. Um, you know, we have a, a research paper that um, we that came out a couple was published a couple of years ago, and it was about the messages that uh, people receive growing up um, from their parents, and it's, it's a that's a term called financial socialization, is which is how we. Uh, learn about money and we get these uh, lessons either directly or indirectly from family, friends, uh, peers, you know. And so, you know, there was a paper that we did and I say we, um, I just want to take a moment and um, give some acknowledgments to the people that do this research with me because I don't do it alone. Like I couldn't do this alone. So there's yeah. uh you know, there is Megan McCoy at Kansas State that I work with often, um, Kimberly Watkins at the University of Georgia, Miranda Ryder at Texas Tech University. Um, I work with them often. And um, so, you know, we had a paper that came out uh, a couple of years ago and that investing message by far had the um, most impact in terms of reducing financial stress and as you became a young adult having you uh, be more optimistic about your financial future um, promoting uh, you know what we call healthy or normative financial behaviors and so you know I'm, I'm glad I'm really glad you brought that up because parents that teach their children about investing in particular is uh, they're doing a good thing. <laughs> uh, when I was growing up, you know, my dad would tell me often, you know, you need to save money, make sure you save some money. And that's kind of was my introduction to uh, this whole world of personal finance was my dad telling me as a kid to save my money. Uh, but just saving money is not necessary. That's that's not the end point. You know, you want to go a little further and do something with your savings, which wasn't the message that I received growing up. And so as I got older, that became part of my interest. I was more interested in uh, not just saving, but also what to do with the money after you save. It does raise that kind of next natural question. If I've uh, saved up money at some point, it's what do I do with all this money that I'll, now that I've got it? Yeah. Yeah, and I, I wonder, you know, there's obviously some part of this is what our parents can teach us is dependent on their level of financial literacy, right? their own understanding. And, and that's a natural limit that we all have. And 
I mean, I guess at this point, you think there's some parents though that have very high financial literacy and they don't pass any of it on to their kids. You're you're absolutely right. Not a very effective, not very effectively, right? So it's kind of like there is uh, some learning that parents need to do about how to pass on effective money messages to their kids. You're absolutely right. And one of the one of the best things that parents can do is just have the conversation, open up the conversations. We did another uh, research project which showed that it's less than twenty percent of households um, in the data set that we were using um, actually are having financial conversations at all. And so one of the first things that we need to do is just get families sitting around talking about money. You know, it, it sometimes it can be a taboo topic to talk about money, but it shouldn't be and it doesn't have to be. Just open up the conversation and there's a lot that can that can happen by just starting those conversations. What are some of those things that do start to happen when families have mo- proactive money conversations? What's what do you see happening? Yeah. So within families, there's a theory called social capital theory that I just love. Um, and I, I, you know, I see your face lighting <laughs> up as you, you say it. Yeah. Uh, uh-huh. Social capital theory would say that um, within families, if the more you communicate about these financial topics, what happens is you reinforce positive behaviors. And so, you know, norms can be passed down from generation to generation. But also it gives you an opportunity to because everybody in the family also has outside relationships with other people where yep. they can get new information and then bring it back to the family. And so um, there's some layers that goes into that whole social capital theory. But just one of the main things that can happen is you can reinforce uh, family norms in terms of how they uh in terms of how families handle money. Now, that opens up another thing because, as you mentioned before, the level of financial literacy within families can vary. And so, you know, that's why the the talk now about having financial education in K through 12 and more uh, financial education courses and workshops in, in colleges is so important so that for families that maybe don't have that level of financial knowledge within the family, there's other places outside the family where they can get it and then bring it back to the household. You know, that really stands out to me, Kenneth, is that each family member has outside relationships. And so if, if uh, as a family therapist, we talk about um, open family systems and closed family systems, Right. And closed family systems don't allow outside information into the family mm-hmm. and open family systems allow for outside information to come in, to be filtered through the family and discern what's relevant and helpful and what's not, it gets kind of booted back out. And that, you know, and so I guess, I mean, it gets a little bit nuanced, but there can be mistrust of new financial information, especially because families have been financially exploited and abused in the past by outside groups. Uh, so like 
families discerning what's good financial information versus bad financial information can even get a little tricky there, right? Oh, absolutely. Um, and especially when you start looking at it through a, um, a race and ethnicity lens where, you know, historically um, certain populations, certain communities were uh, not allowed to um, take part in the in the financial services industry. They were, you know, being actively kept out or um, they've experienced some kind of bias or uh, something, you know, discrimination or something within um, the financial services industry. Uh, those messages, even though times may have gotten better, those messages still pass down from generation to generation. And, you know, it does kind of perpetuate that that level of mistrust about um, financial institutions and the information that you uh, often receive from um, outside sources. So you're absolutely right. Uh, how can families that have been historically excluded from quality financial information start to identify providers of, of good or healthy balanced financial information? I don't know if that's a, within your scope of research and understanding or not, but yeah. when families are asking themselves, we have a mistrust of the financial services industry and, and what's been done to our group of people, what's that journey out of that look like? Yeah, I, I think it goes back to what we were uh, you know, just talking about moments ago about those relationships. And so kind of tapping into your networks first, would be a great place to start. And so um, there's people that, you know, that everyone trusts someone <laughs> and there, there's people <laughs> right. that you, that you can trust, that you can go to uh, and trust, whether that is, you know, a financial professional, which you can find through organizations like the CFP board or financial therapy association or, you know, AFCPE or, yeah, um, a, a trusted professional outside of the financial industry, which would be, you know, maybe a, a pastor, minister or um, some kind of social worker or something that you might have um, contact with. And so there's there are places that you can look to uh, that don't have to be the large um financial institutions that we typically think about, you know, banking institutions, the um, investment institutions, investment companies, and um, in order to start that journey of um, getting more information. Um, but, you know, one easy place to go is like a local library or bookstore and just grab a book. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love it. I, I'm game for bookstores and libraries. That's where I started. Absolutely. I remember um, I was working at one of the automakers when I lived in Michigan still, and um, a book came out uh, by uh, Gail Perry Mason, and uh, I read that book. It was called Money Matters, uh, and you know, I, I really studied that book, and that's where I started to, to kind of get the start on this personal finance journey. 
there's lots of material out there now and lots of uh, relationships that people can tap into for for more information. There is a, I guess in some ways, right? I mean, I don't know if we're about the same age or not, but I remember I went to the League City Library where I lived in Texas and started checking out books on like uh, Warren Buffett and just whoever's name I could recognize. And I just, I'd read anything and everything, just trying to figure it all out. Um, and now, and like, I mean, that was before the internet was really like the internet. Right. Like Googling, Googling was not really a thing uh, when I was trying to figure all this stuff out. And now, I, I mean, I guess, sorry, I'm jumping. I was just thinking about, and you're working with college students. So you probably have like Gen Z folks that are like learning about money on TikTok. Oh, absolutely. That's where like the kids are going to learn about money. They're not going to the library. I mean, like you and I might want them to, right? <laughs> right, right, right. I'm, I'm kind of showing my age telling people to go to the library. Huh? <laughs> That's right. I mean, you're in good company with me. Uh, but yeah, I mean, right. So, but the need to learn about money hasn't changed. It's what mediums people are using to learn about it. And, you know, would you say that learning about money is a lifelong process? Oh, absolutely. Um, I'm a financial planning professor and I'm still learning, you know, um, about these topics. There's so much to know, uh, that, you know, you're, it's constantly a, a journey of learning. Uh, but it's also very simple to, uh, to manage your resources that you have. And so, you know, I, I was listening to um, a news report last week and they were talking about how how spending is still very high. Like consumers are still buying stuff, even though we hear about inflation, we hear about, you know, possible recession, we hear about wage stagnation and just all of these things that we hear about. But consumer spending is still high. And so, you know, people would take that and think that oh, well, things are, you know, things probably are not as bad as what we, you know, the the, the reports that we're hearing. But the next sentence w- was, but the savings rate continues to decline. <laughs> and so, you know, even something as simple as that is uh, just making sure that you are, you know, you set a goal to save 10 or 15% of, of what you have coming in and not spend more than you have coming in. Just simple things like that can go a long way towards you mastering your finances, you feeling good about your financial situation. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to the Healthy Love and Money podcast. I'm honored that you spend time with me listening to these incredible interviews. I love working with individuals and couples around their financial life, integrating mental health and relational well-being. I'd love to personally invite you into my financial planning practice where I do therapy-informed financial planning, bringing together mental health, relationship health, and financial well-being. If you're thinking that's the type of help you'd like, please see the show notes below to schedule your free 30-minute discovery call. And I'll look forward to seeing you and hearing more about your unique story and how I can best support you. Now, back to the show. I really want to highlight this because I know there's a segment of the listeners that are are money nerds, money experts, and they love learning about money ideas. This guy included, pointing my finger at me. 
And I think sometimes you can get so, I, I know that I have, let me just speak for myself. I have gotten so caught up in learning about money and how it works that I've neglected the, the most crucial piece, which is the money behavior and some of the foundations, right? And so it's like, if you're at that point in your money journey where you're, you're learning more and you're excited about it and you're curious and you're always, but you're not tending to the fundamentals. It's like, let's go back to baseball or basketball, whatever your sport of choice was as a kid. Like, the fancy footwork is great. The the slam dunks are fun, but man, if you can't do the fundamentals, like you don't don't lose touch with the fundamentals. And that's really maybe the message. That's for me at least. Is I, I'll be real with you. Like I, we stopped tracking expenses. And I was just like, oh, I'm learning all this other cool stuff. And and dang, if it, getting back to the old school, just tracking expenses and how powerful that is to just look at and see what your money is doing. Like it's really easy to think that you've mastered it or you're, you know too much so you don't need to do this simple thing. But like the simple behaviors are the ones that are going to give you the biggest bang for your buck. Absolutely. Absolutely. You, you know, um, I work in a um, CFP board registered program. And so, you know, we train um, financial planners to go out and work with families and individuals and so there's, you know, there's uh, investment planning, there's tax planning, there's uh, retirement planning, insurance planning. But one of the you know, biggest areas that I think is often overlooked is uh, estate planning for just the regular families. And so estate planning is a part of your uh, money management. And so doing something as simple as making sure you have uh, the proper beneficiaries on uh, accounts and uh, insurance, uh, your, your life insurance and sure. and disability insurance. Yeah, yes. just making sure you got your, your beneficiaries correct. You don't want to be in a situation where you might have a, uh, you know, a blended family and someone passes away and, and those uh, resources go to an ex-spouse or something. <laughs> that is so valuable. You know, and I was kind of joking in my head, we're, we're recording this going into the holiday season. And I was thinking, you know, everyone wants to go to the holiday party and be like, oh, I'm crushing it. I picked this great investment or, you know, kind of being a little braggadocious. I don't think anybody's going to a holiday party and be like, man, I just checked my beneficiary designation. It's on point. It's tight. It's good. That X ain't getting any of my money. Like, no, no one's... But, like, but it's, it's so important though, right? It is. It is. You know, I was I was talking to somebody else recently, another, I think, planner, and, and uh, she was saying something about getting disinherited after the divorce. Like, as a kid, because, like, the state plan... Like, Y'all, you need, if you don't know what we're talking about, sit down with a financial planner and have them map out where the money flows if you die. Just run the what if. Like, if I die, where does my money go? Because that stuff can get off off track easier than you think. And and the, the beneficiaries can get out of date. Now, I want to stay with that and then also say, when you're training these young, I'm saying young, What's the mix of like young college students in your planning program versus career changers ballpark? Yeah, I think um, in undergrad programs, those tend to be more of the traditional college age students. Um, when you're talking about the graduate programs, master's, uh, PhD, those tend to be more of the career changers 
And so you'll have a larger percentage of career changers that are in master's programs because they're trying to get the the educational requirements met in order to sit for the CFP exam. Um, they often have already you know, gone to college and gotten an undergraduate degree, so they just need to get the master's degree to do that. And so as planners are learning and growing, and this is, you know, I, I kind of want to say this out of the background and experience. A lot of times people come into the planning industry and their first clients are their family members. And so, like, how do we, I don't even know what my question is. Here, but, um, <laughs> well, I, I'll jump in with two things. Um, one is, uh, you know, we were talking about social capital theory and um, Coleman who is one of the kind of one of the pioneers of social capital theory. He said that, and I'm paraphrasing this, he says that people learn information first for themselves and then to um, share it or teach others. And so these, you know, these topics that people are learning, it's just natural that uh, kind of your first clients, so to speak, would be, uh, a parent or a sibling or a cousin that you have these conversations with. And so that's why it's so important to have these conversations at home, because as you learn and you're introducing them to other people in the family, but also the um, the project that um, I was presenting and uh, you saw at AFCPE about the financial planning students being clients of financial planners. Um, you know, one of the things that we found in that project was that uh, the, the students that we had in class, uh, they were often trying to use that information to help their parents because their parents hadn't uh, yet, you know, really saved for retirement or, you know, they weren't where they should be financially. They might have a lot of debt or, you know, has some tax issues that they were uh, that they hadn't dealt with. And so, you know, we could see that in the students that they were taking information they were learning in class and they were trying to help their parents with it. You can't see this, but I'm almost coming to tears as you're sharing this, Kenneth. It's, I think it really reframed where I was going with this. I had this kind of negative, like I was looking through the lens of like the industry absorbs people that want to be financial advisors and then says like, give us a list of your family members so we can sell them a bunch of products, right? Like that, which is true in some segments of the poll. But I think what you're saying is really far more important is the people that are drawn to financial planning are drawn to financial planning because they're trying to figure something out for themselves or for a close family member or maybe both. Yeah. And that resonates so deeply true for me. Yeah. You know, I think that there is um, definitely a, a part of the financial planning, financial planner population or future financial planner population that um, gets into it because they see it as an opportunity to have a great career, make a lot of money for themselves. Um, and, you know, there's nothing wrong, nothing at, at all wrong with um, making a lot of money for yourself, uh, you know. But there's also a large 
percentage of uh, the financial planning students that are out there. Now, if, if you just talk to them, they have these, uh, you know, altruistic motives where they are like, I want to help people. I, I got into this because I'm interested in working with, with families. I'm interested in helping people. And so there is um, a large segment of financial planning students that really are concerned with the well-being of the uh, families and individuals that they're going to work with later. I think this really ties so well back to what you were talking about earlier with like how do families start to change and trust information is you get that family member that goes to be a financial planner, right? And they're trying to figure it out because they know that money has been a source of pain in their family and they're trying to figure it out. And there is that kind of more altruistic motive or drivers. I really just want to help people because I've seen the stress. I've felt the stress myself and I don't want to live with that. Literally, that's why I, I went into financial planning is, you know, I knew that mon money was a source of stress for my, my folks. And it wasn't the absence of income necessarily. It was more around how money was allocated. Uh, but then when I was sitting around the fire station, you know, in my first job, I'd hear the guys complain about their wives and money. And it was very clear to me, like, I mean, they were, you know, had different financial situations. So I knew it wasn't just about the level of income. It was, there was something more there. And so there is that balance of kind of technical competency about how money works. And then there's the psychological family competency and getting those blended together. Um, Kenneth, I don't know how much, I know the CFP board has rolled out its new client psychology um, requirements. How are you seeing students adopt to that and, and get that as part of their, their learning? Yeah, I think that the students are, um, really excited about that new knowledge topic and um, they are, you know, really um, looking forward to gaining knowledge in that area and applying it. I think that they definitely see the value in it. Um, and I think that it's something that um, that we should be implementing. If it's not a standalone course, it's, we should be implementing it in each of the uh, courses that we already have in these programs. So, you know, if you're an instructor in an insurance planning course or a, a tax planning course, um, you should be implementing some of these topics that uh, are a part of the psychology of financial planning knowledge topic now. Yeah, and that was one of the things also that, um, you know, the project that um, I was presenting on at the conference, um, I think that students are, you know, and we've talked about a, a number of these topics already that uh, was a part of this project. And so I'm just going to kind of uh, jump into that. On. Yeah, bring it all together. Yeah. Uh, but one of the things that we saw in that project was that students, the financial planning students are coming to this major having been socialized in many different ways, in a variety of different ways. And so that psychology of financial planning knowledge topic can be huge. It can be very beneficial because the students have different attitudes about money. They have different uh, bias about money. They have different 
you know, behaviors about money. They've been taught differently about money as they grew up. Um, and so this is a real opportunity for not just the financial planner in the terms of, or in the sense of a certified financial planner, but other financial professionals like financial therapists and financial counselors to really get involved with uh, financial planning programs and um, help students to overcome some of those, uh, I'm going to just say, you know, negative perceptions about money that they might have before we send them out into the world to advise other people <laughs> about their money. <laughs> and so, you know, that that psychology of financial planning knowledge topic is is huge. It's very important. You know, and the financial planning students is one of the is might be the best place that we can start um, kind of really hammering those um, those topics there's so much. So I think, you know, for people that are listening, the, the big thing is your financial planner has their own belief system around money that colors the way they're advising you on what to do with your money. And I don't know if there's any research on this, but I anecdotally have seen in the industry where planners will partner, will match with people that have similar values. And that can be a good thing. And that can be a really bad thing <laughs> because, right, like, you know, I'm just going to pick on, um, kind of the financial tightwads, the the hyper savers, right? Where they are really good at saving. That's what they, they attract the clients that want to be like, are that way, that mindset, but they miss out on financial pleasure, right? That's an example of a, a money bias is I'm fearful about spending my money or enjoying it. So I just focus on saving and accumulating. And that's what I advise all my clients to do. And then we're missing out on, you know, and we haven't even defined this, but Financial well-being, right, is kind of a more balanced approach to money, at least as I understand it. So, I mean, that's just one practical example of, as a consumer of financial planning services, you want to be aware that your planner has their own belief system and value system around money. And if they haven't thought about that or reflected on that, how that colors what they advise to do, that's going to influence and shape some of what you're getting too. Yeah, and I think that... Um... You know, that's definitely one of the areas where if you are a uh, financial planner, having your own financial professional that you go to can be beneficial. Because if you have you know, some of those, whatever money attitudes you might have, that other person may be able to point that out and um, and help you kind of deal with that issue before or you know, while you're uh, also having working with your own client base and then just seeing some of the best practices of uh, of other financial professionals will help you in your own practice. And so there's a, a, a lot of uh, a lot going on here. And I like what you said about tight wads and enjoying the kind of the pleasures of life also, because you don't want to be so wrapped up in. Uh, tomorrow that you forget about today. You know, everybody has a budget constraint, right? You you can either spend your dollar today or you can spend it tomorrow. But if you are saving everything or or you know trying to save everything for tomorrow and you're you're missing out on on today, then that's not healthy either. 
Yeah, I think, I don't know who was saying this. I mean, I'm thinking of Dr. Sarah Newcomb's research with Morningstar, and she framed it recently around financial planning as helping you balance that living for today and living for tomorrow yeah. and helping you kind of think through that. And and that that's financial well-being exists kind of between the spaces of living for today and living for tomorrow. And people that only live for today may really be enjoying themselves, but suffer some really negative consequences in the future. And people that are only living for the future will often have a life of regret when they get down the road because they've missed out on pleasurable opportunities along their whole lifespan. So we're trying to to smooth that and find that balance. Absolutely. And then what if you have a couple that uh, has (laughs) has lived all of their lives together and one has been a saver and one has been a spender and, you know, um, they get to their retirement years uh, and the one that has saved is then, you know, feels this obligation to share or provide for the one that has been a spender. You know, not every couple um, commingles their funds. And so, um, you know, that that can create some other issues, as uh, I'm sure, you know, with your uh, <laughs> with your love and money show. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we're opening up a whole series, podcast series we could do on that, right? Is, I mean, I think the short reality is, I mean, I encourage couples to see each person as both a saver and spender in the relationship, that each partner is responsible for both sides of that. And I realize that people are biased in one direction or, or the other, but um, if you can allow space to be in both roles, I think the flexibility, right, is really kind of the name of the game in, in my book. And that's... You know, when I think about financial therapists and physical therapists, right, like physical therapists, like if your arm's frozen up, what are they doing? They're trying to get it to increase the range of motion. If it's out of the socket, they're trying to get everything to tighten up so it doesn't just flop all over the place. And I I really think about financial therapy a lot in the same way. Like we're trying to either get you from flopping all over the place and being chaotic about things or trying to get you to loosen up. Those are really the two ends of the work. And we're trying to find this middle zone. And so... Uh, you know, the work that you're doing as a, as a financial planning professor and educator and the research um, just helps validate that, that practice. Kenneth, as we wrap today up, what's one parting piece of advice, guidance, piece of wisdom that you'd, you would want to pass on? Oh, um, I think I'm going to go back to one of the things that we uh, uh, mentioned earlier, and that is talk about investing. <laughs> Talk about investing. <laughs> it's so important to have these conversations. Just, you know, op- open it up. Even if you feel like you might not know enough to have the conversation, start somewhere and just, you know, open up the conversations. Would you say even like that may be the starting place for the conversations to say, I don't understand investing, but I know I, I want to know more. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, that would be a great place to start if you are. Um, if you're brand new, if you're a novice investor, then uh, go with that. I don't understand it, but let's go on a journey to learn it together. Yeah, that's great. Kenneth, thank you so much for your time. Keep rocking those great students there at University of Arizona. We know we need more great financial planners out there and uh, appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. I invite you now to stop for five or 10 minutes and reflect on what you just heard. Maybe even journal about it. 
Give yourself the time to consider what you just heard and what it means to you. By giving yourself the time to reflect and integrate what you just heard, it will help you along your journey of learning, healing, and growing towards financial intimacy in your life. Please like and follow this podcast and share with someone that would benefit from being on the journey of financial intimacy. Wishing you healthy love and money, Ed. Ed.